going to talk this morning about participating in God's promises. And I think you would all agree, just from the ministry we've had and everything, uh, God's done significant work in that. In fact, part of the, uh, my thinking at the end was to do something similar to what we've already done about surrendering to God and uh, taking note of what He's saying to us in that regard. So just uh, briefly, just to touch on a few things related to participating in God's promises. This idea came to me from uh, Pastor Louis when he was preaching two weeks ago. He made this statement, he said, sometimes we view God's promises as statements of blessing, or do we rather view them as statements of purpose? Now, I think when God makes a promise, he wants to bless us. But when Pastor Louis said that, it just arrested me because it helped put a couple of things for me in place around the promises of God. And the focus this morning, I want to encourage us to look at that when God gives us a promise, it's primarily a statement of purpose. It will bless us and it will bless others, which is always God's intention, always beyond ourselves. But God's promises are statements of purpose. Now, we know that God makes and keeps his promises. And if I had more time, I'd take you through quite a few scriptures in the Old Testament to show you how God makes and keeps promises. I want to just look at two to, to hit us in a specific ministry direction that perhaps we haven't touched on this morning. One of the first promises that God makes in the scriptures for us is in Genesis chapter 3. It's a promise of redemption, a promise that he would come and save us. Adam and Eve have just sinned terribly. They've turned away from God. They've done their own thing in their own strength. They've done what they thought is best in the Garden of Eden. The serpent has tempted them and tricked them, and they did what God told them not to do. What's always amazing for me in this story is that God then is right there. He's right there with them in the garden as they've sinned. He doesn't distance himself from them. He comes, he gives them clothes to wear, he sacrifices an animal. And then as part of that interaction, he speaks a curse out on the serpent, who's a representation there of the devil. And in Genesis 3.15, we have our first promise in the Bible of redemption, a promise of salvation. God speaking to the serpent says, I'll put enmity, a war, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, speaking of Jesus, who we now know, sitting this side of history, Jesus will come and he will crush your head, but he will strike your heel. In my mind, that refers a bit to the, to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so right there, God makes a promise that a redeemer would come. Someone would come and fix the sin problem. Someone would come and set things right in a way that he's always intended them to be. The mission of God starts right there in the, garden of, uh, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve have sinned. And so very importantly, we know that because Jesus has come, God kept his promise. Because God makes promises and keeps them. The second Old Testament promise that I just want us to look at quickly is found in Genesis chapter 12. It's a promise that God made to Abraham. It's a significant promise because it's one of the fundamental promises. Paul uses it particularly in the books of Galatians and Romans as a foundation for his understanding of faith and what God was intending to do in history. We're going to read the promise from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. This promise comes to Abraham, by the way, when he's 75 years old. Anybody? Okay, 75. So you're never too old, okay? In fact, this promise really only starts getting fulfilled in Abraham's life when he's 100, when Isaac gets born. So maybe people lived longer then, but that's quite something. Genesis 12, God says this to uh, Abraham. He says, I will make you 
into a great, sorry, I'm reading from verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And we know that this is largely fulfilled through the establishment of the Israelite nation. He says, I will bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This promise that God makes to Abram, that all people on the earth will be blessed because of what Abram has done. What has Abram done? Abram's living in Ur of the Chaldees, and it seems God had had a previous interaction with his father where he asked him to follow him and to move, and kind of, they got stuck in Ur. And God comes to Abram at Ur, and he says, I will bless you, and I will do all of this, but I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave that which is known and comfortable, and I want you to follow me, and I want you to come to what we now know is the promised land. Abram's whole life then, he chooses to believe what God said he would do. God said, if you do this, if you leave everything you know and you follow me, if you respond to me in faith, then all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And I'm really glad that Abram did respond to God in that way because we are blessed today because that Abram chose to believe that God would do what he said he would do. And he promises Abram, how does this blessing come to all nations? That one of Abram's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, through the nation of Israel, that Jesus would come, a Messiah would come, and he would fulfill the promise made earlier in Genesis, that salvation would come to every ethnic group, to every ethnos, to every people, group, and nation on earth. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be blessed because Abram responded to God. God keeps his promise to Abram as Jesus, uh, through Jesus when he comes. If we move through to the New Testament, guys, I think I'm going to pick up around slide 10 or 11 maybe, just see. One of the things we see, particularly in this promise to Abraham, and even as Pastor Letzola highlighted last week, where Jesus prays this prayer of surrender in the garden, that to fulfill the promises God made in Genesis and to Abraham, Jesus participates in the will of God. Abraham has to participate in what God says. And so when God makes promises, and many through the Old Testament that we could look at, there's this expectation that participation in the promises of God was required, because God's promises are statements of purpose. If I may use the analogy that Pastor Sean used during the worship time, where he says when you get set, you lift your head and you look where you're going to go. The promise focuses you. The promise tells you in which direction to run. But as God makes the promise, we need to participate with him in the statement of purpose. So in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God fulfills all his promises in the Old Testament with regard to salvation. And then invites us in the life of Jesus to participate with him in their fulfillment. And this is part of what I think Debbie shared the word around tenacity. There's a change coming where the promises of God come to us and we don't just sit back and think, oh, it's so wonderful, Lord, that you want to bless me. It's time for us to say, in my heart, Lord, I'm surrendered. In my heart, I'm yielded. But I'm going to participate. I'm going to step into the things you've promised for me. And so being Easter time, I thought to focus on a few promises that are much more associated with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just pick a few out of the New Testament and... uh, will go as time allows. One of the first promises that aligns so well with the promise of Genesis chapter 3 is also a promise of redemption that's linked to the life of Jesus. It's actually the fulfillment of that. And the scripture I want to highlight there for us just to have something to tag on is in Galatians chapter 3 
and verse 14. So I'm going to go through quite a few scriptures, so maybe just make a few notes of them as you go. Galatians 3.14, Paul writes, and he speaks of Jesus, and he says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham from Genesis 12 might come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish nations, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. When we do what Abraham did, when we believe God and we respond to him in faith, we become heirs and inheritors of this promise that God made to Abraham, and we receive the Holy Spirit. In this case, what Paul is referring to is that when we are redeemed, when we come into relationship with God, His Spirit comes and lives in us. And so when we participate in the promises of God, it's not about self-sufficiency. It's not about our own strength and effort. It's about the participation of the Spirit of God in us, empowering us to do what we ought to do. And so there's this promise of redemption made to Abraham that we have an active role to play in. How do we respond? What is our role in this promise of redemption? It's a good question. Thank you for asking. It's the same question they asked Peter when he preached in the book of Acts. How do I respond to this promise? How do I participate in the promise of redemption? Peter said you must repent and believe. Simply meaning you decide no longer to live for yourself after your own goals, ambitions, and dreams, conforming to what you think is good, normal, and right, and you turn and you choose to say, I'm living towards God, responding to what God said. And I believe that he will do what he said he would do. Part of that is he will forgive me for my sins. Those things which I've done wrong, where I've violated myself and others, missed God's mark and intention and plans for my life. I will turn away from them and believe that Jesus paid the price for that. So there's a promise of redemption that's linked to Easter for us. Close to it is another promise. It's a promise of reconciliation. A promise of reconciliation. Now, theologically, they're quite close. And uh, Pastor Dr. Sean, I have to use the doctor because it gives weight to my message now, you see. Um, quickly called him on Friday and said, you know, how would you distinguish between redemption and reconciliation? And in the theology of it, they're very similar. But for me, particularly, reconciliation adds this relational element to it. Redemption is my sins are paid for, they're forgiven. Reconciliation is that I'm restored in relationship with God and with others. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18 speaks about reconciliation. It says, all this, the salvation, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us a ministry of reconciliation. So the first element of reconciliation is that we are restored, we are reconciled to God. We have right relationship with God. He paid the price through Jesus' suffering on the cross that we can be back in relationship with him. And this is part of the mission of God, where God's intention has always been, often if we read in the Old Testament, this phrase comes up at significant places, I will be their God and they will be my people. The book of Revelation Close to the end, it says, now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. That was the intention in Genesis, that we are in relationship with God. That's what Adam and Eve turned away from when they sinned. The whole redemption story is that we can be back in relationship with God. How do we participate in this promise of reconciliation? It means we pursue relationship with God. We put him first. We come back to him, as we sang during the offering song as well. 
We pursue relationship. It also means that we have a role in a ministry of reconciliation, as 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, where we have a role to bring others back into relationship with God. And probably beyond that, to work into society and in areas of uh, justice and in our communities and in business spaces, that we're reconciling things to the way that God would have them done. It's a third promise, and this will be the last one that we look at this morning in particular, is that there's a promise of eternal life, that we will live forever. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25 says it just really short and really, really clearly. 1 John chapter 2 and 20, verse 25, the Apostle John writes and he says, and this is what he promised us. This is what Jesus promised us. He promised us eternal life. We are redeemed we are reconciled with God so that we can live forever. And I wonder if you understand that this morning. You will really live forever. In the movie Gladiator, if you didn't watch it, it's still okay. Um, one of the lead characters repeats this refrain. He says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. And, I mean, it sounds really nice and, and noble, and there's probably some truth to it. But the real issue, the real truth, is that what you do in this life determines your eternity. It doesn't echo in eternity. It determines your eternity. I just one-upped Ridley Scott there. It's cool. Okay. We are redeemed. We are reconciled so that we can have eternal life. Eternal life is this, that we will know God and worship Him forever and be in relationship with Him. This is the intention of God's plan. Philippians 2.12 tells us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, with appropriate effort and with appropriate intention. Because we don't just get eternal life. You work yourself out to it. You put your faith in Jesus and you live forever. And then you work out what that means. So how do I respond to this promise of eternal life? I respond by choosing to live with an eternal life perspective. What does that mean? That means that my future reality is going to govern my present conduct. One day I will live forever in relationship with God in heaven. I will live in a holy place. And we experienced in some tangible ways this morning that sense of, of holiness in this place. What do we do with that? How do we respond in our lives in that way? Which means in increasing measure, I align my life with what God wants me to do. I leave my old life behind and I embrace a new life. We don't have time to look at it now, but there's a promise of new life. Romans 6, 4, that when we resurrected with Christ, he, and it's speaking about the symbolism of baptism, we, we rise to live a new life. And this simply means we leave our old lives behind and we work towards living a new life in Christ. There's many other promises that we will not look at this morning largely due to time, but there's promises of restoration where God said that he will restore us by healing. He will restore ourselves and make us stand strong and firm and steadfast. And so even in this Easter time, we can come to God saying, I'm trusting you to be restored. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's financially, maybe it's relationally. There's promises of restoration and hope that come to us in the time of Easter. How do we participate in the promises of God? It starts, as we've been distressing in the last few weeks, with a posture of surrender. But when I surrender, 
I don't become passive. I become active. I lean in to what God is saying. Surrender means not my will as Jesus prayed, but your will. That doesn't mean you sit back and go, I surrender, Lord, bring it on. Okay. Now, we're not talking here about a self-sufficiency where I know what God wants and I'm going to make it happen. It's about working with God. It's working in a posture of surrender. And so when we surrender to God's promises, we actively then need to step and participate in them. And God invites us this morning. If I had to say what's the one thing I wanted to land this morning, God is inviting you, God is inviting me to participate in his promises that he has made for us. I think of Mary when the angel Gabriel came to and made an astounding promise. You will give birth to the Son of God. And we all know Mary's response, be it to me according to what you have said. Be it to me, be it to me according to what you have said. There's a surrender, obviously, in Mary's posture to God. But I think we all understand she had to play a role. Her whole life changes that moment where she gives birth to the Son of God. And she stands at the cross watching her son die as well. But her posture is a participation. She follows Jesus. She knows his teachings. She knows who he is. I was reading this morning about the miracle in Cana where they run out of wine and his mother comes and says, she calls the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus kind of goes, ach, mom. No, really. It's, just, it's in Hebrew. but it's... <laughs> He does. He says, women, what are you doing? Ach, mom. Okay. But she knew something about her son. She's actively participating in what God wants to do in the life of Jesus. And so we did some ministry in this earlier in the service, but is there a promise of God that he wants you to participate in this morning? Maybe it's a personal promise, something he's spoken to you recently or a while ago that you've just taken as an intent, a statement of intent, a statement of blessing, but actually God is saying, I want you to participate and take an active role. The posture then is to surrender and say, yes, Lord, well, what is it that you would have me do? Just one step. What's my one next step that I can take to do? But on a broader scale, perhaps you've never participated in God's promises of redemption, reconciliation, and eternal life. If you want to experience the blessing of God's promises, you have to step into the space of redemption, reconciliation, and eternal life. And what we'd like to do, we're going to close the service in the next minute or two. But if you've never participated in that promise of God, if you've never said, Jesus, I accept that you're forgiving me of my sins, that you paid a price for the evil and the wrong that I have done, the violation of others and myself, if you've never said, I want to be reconciled to Christ, we're going to make an opportunity. What we'll do is we'll close the service and the prayer team and the pastors will be in front. Won't you just come up at that stage and say, I've never participated in the promise of salvation. And we would love, absolutely love, it would be a privilege for us to pray with you, to step you into the space of relationship with Jesus Christ so that you too can really live forever in the way that God has intended you to live. Can I invite you to, to stand? And I'll pray for us all. Father, you've told us here at Hatfield that you want us to bring God's kingdom into hearts and into homes and, and beyond that. 
And Lord, you've given us promises, I know, to each of us, perhaps for each of our hearts, perhaps for our families in our homes, and for many of us, Lord, beyond ourselves, for our communities and for our workplaces. Lord, we want to step into partnering with you, participating with you, to have that tenacity to pursue your promises. We lift our heads this morning, Lord, and we look at those promises where we've given up hope. We say today that you are our living hope. And we want to pursue you more. Thank you for the wonderful sense of your presence this morning, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us. We are a grateful people. And we love you. And help us, Lord, in that love to obey you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, just to say, if you want to be baptized this morning, we'll be doing baptism in the function hall. It's to your left as you leave the building. But if you've never participated in God's promise of salvation, won't you come? And the prayer team will be here and the pastors, and we'd love to pray with you. Have a blessed Sunday, and thank you for the few extra minutes.